The fall conference season is right around the corner, and we've got two events that you need to put on your calendar. On October 19th, we are back with Transition AI New York. Transition AI is the leading B2B event for energy practitioners and artificial intelligence experts. The New York event will explore current use cases and deployments within electric utilities, the role AI can play in streamlining project development, maximizing revenues, and integrating DERs. Plus, I'm going to do some live interviews and storytelling on stage. We'll present some deep market research, and we'll have a workshop on use cases. Our listeners get 10% off by using the promo code PSPODS10. Come join me, our journalists and researchers, and a bunch of experts in Manhattan for Transition AI. Register at the link in the show notes or go to transition-ai.com. And for you West Coasters, Canary Media is holding another Canary Live. This one is in Berkeley, California. It is on October 3rd. These events are super fun. We've hosted a couple of them with Canary. Uh, Panelists are handpicked by the Canary editorial team, and they'll dive into all things related to the energy transition, the Inflation Reduction Act, technology, and uh, innovation. Drink, eat, socialize with clean energy leaders, investors, inventors, public leaders, and advocates. You can follow the link in the show notes to get your tickets to Canary Live Bay Area today. Transition AI New York, Canary Live Bay Area. Put them on your fall calendar for October. We'll see you there. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. We are relying on the electricity sector to deliver here over the long term. But if if we can't deliver in the short term, it could cause consumers and voters to decide that this, this whole thing is not really worthwhile. It's the one challenge to rule them all. Welcome to the Power Gauntlet. I'm Shale Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So here's where my mind has been increasingly focused recently. I'm more and more bullish on electricity demand growth over time for a bunch of reasons you'll soon hear. But I'm also more and more concerned about our ability to serve that demand while maintaining affordability, reliability, and our own decarbonization trajectory, particularly in the short to maybe medium term. It is, in my humble opinion, the single biggest near-term roadblock to significant climate progress, at least in the U.S., I've been working on framing these issues and sort of trying to identify the solution suite or what might happen if we don't solve these problems with my colleague, Andy Lubershane, who leads research at EIP and whom you've heard a number of times here before. So this week, a peek inside what is basically an ongoing Slack conversation that Andy and I have been having for months. We've also made a bunch of investments at EIP that fit this thesis already, but there are oh so many more solutions needed here. So Hit us up if you have thoughts. In the meantime, here's Andy. Andy, welcome back. I'm always excited to be here. Thanks, Shale. Let's talk about what you have been calling the power gauntlet uh, and explain a little bit about what that means. But start with maybe a bit of historical context. I mean, I think it's important to frame this. What we're going to be talking about is the changes that we are starting to see happen, and I think kind of in real time in the power sector right now, and the challenges that it's presenting for decarbonization, but also for like a bunch of other industries that just use a lot of power, and what that might portend for what we think 
is a good news in the long term, which is using a lot more electricity, decarbonizing that electricity, and then using that to be a big wedge for climate change. But let's start with like what's been the story high level in electricity for the past couple of decades, which is that despite a fair amount of change in the generation mix, the overall size of the market, at least in the US, as measured by the amount of electricity consumed, like hasn't been changing that much. Right. You know, if you go back even further than that, the electric power industry had an amazing 20th century, right? Basically, it was invented. And then from the moment people started to get access to electricity, uh, we found more and more ways to use it because electricity is super useful. So basically, from the moment electricity came onto the scene and, and through the 20th century, power demand growth, demand for electricity just kept growing and growing and growing at a, at a pretty steady clip. And then... Over the past 15 to 20 years, that curve completely changed. And actually across most of North America, more or less flatlined. Um, we stopped inventing major new ways to use electricity that were as in energy intensive as everything we'd been doing previously. And the things that we started using electricity for, for example, like computing and data centers, we got really, really efficient at very quickly, as we'll talk about, I think, in a bit. Um, and also, a lot of the existing uses for electricity became much more efficient, like lighting, for example, as we transition from incandescent bulbs to uh, CFLs and finally to LEDs. And so, yeah, basically, the demand for this core product in the industry has been kind of flat for you know well over a decade now, coming up on two decades. Um, and there's no industry that can grow you know significantly and consistently without actual growth and demand for the product. Um, and so it's been very exciting being anyone in the electric power business looking ahead to the prospects of this period of decarbonization where we know that beneficial electrification, that the clean electron is going to be one of the most important tools for decarbonization. And if you think several decades into the future, there is this prize, right, which is an electric power sector that is two to three times as big as it is today. But I think what we're starting to contend with now, as you mentioned, is that we have to think about what's between here and there. Um, and the period between where we are today and this long-term prize for the industry, uh, which is playing this incredible role in decarbonization and growing because of it, um, there might actually be a lot of a lot of challenges and, and to some degree some pain. And what we're seeing is this gauntlet starting to form where there's kind of a narrow passage and it's actually coming into coming into the picture much more quickly, I think, than than I would have predicted a few years ago. Where there's kind of these two big challenges on either side of the gauntlet that that the the power sector has to contend with. Okay, so we're going to talk through both sides of that gauntlet, but yeah, just to add a bit of context to what you're saying, I think you framed it the right way, which is that I, my sense is so the you know the power industry over the past 15 years or so has grown accustomed to this kind of state of affairs, which is like a changing generation mix, but relatively flat demand. I, I think the industry also has woken up to that long-term promise that you described, the sort of couple of decades from now, and just to put some numbers on it, right? Electricity in the US today is somewhere around 20% of final energy consumption, uh, which means there's an 80% of the prize, even assuming no growth in overall energy consumption, 80% of the prize is open to electricity. Um, so figure we're going to go from, and this is what some of the, the sort of 2050 net zero models suggest, we're going to go from maybe 20% to 40% electricity. 
Uh, and so that's, that's a doubling of the overall market, could even be more than that. So I think people have sort of woken up to that part of it. But what I think we want to talk about is, is much more immediate. It's like what's happening, what's starting to happen today and in the next few years. Um, because the long-term gain is pretty clear, but the short-term pain is, I think, just starting to arrive. So let's talk about the two sides of the gauntlet. Side one is the demand side. Side two is the supply side. So on the demand side, you mentioned data centers before, and data centers have, and computing generally, has generally been a success story in the sense that we've, over the past decade plus, done much, much, much more of it, but it's become much, much, much more efficient. So the actual load uh, associated with compute has been flat-ish. And the question is, will that continue to be true in today's environment, particularly with the advent of these large learning models and uh, and generative AI? So what do we know about that at this point? I think the uh, at a high level, the, the power sector is going to start having to reckon with a be careful what you wish for moment. And data centers are one element. A couple others we should talk about are uh, industrial facilities and industrial electrification. I think hydrogen production is one. I think EV charging is another. But you know, beginning with data centers, uh, which you mentioned, like you said, you know, computing demand for computing has grown, as everyone knows, it's obvious, tremendously in the past ten years. I think it's grown by about ten x over that period. Um, but over that same period, data center energy consumption grew by just about 10%, which is actually crazy to me. Um, and that's that's for a lot of different reasons. I mean, uh, computing has just become more efficient basically at every level of the, of the computing stack. And the question is whether that is going to hold uh, in this period of, you know, the next generation of software, which includes uh, generative AI, large language models, et cetera. And I... I I have to say, this is an area I still have a lot of uncertainty about myself. I think everyone pretty much does. But, you know, as as business people like to say, directionally, directionally, I think it's very unlikely that AI is going to um, reduce energy consumption. All of the signposts suggest that um, AI-related computing tasks are generally more energy consumptive than similar tasks that are accomplished in another way, but might might not get you as, as good of an outcome. Um, and we're starting to see this, um, you know, emerge empirically as well as theoretically. Like, if you look at any of the analysts that cover data centers in the real estate market, they're starting to say that, you know, data center inventory, basically spare computing resources, are starting to, to run low. And anecdotally, we're starting to see um, this bump up against uh, the ability of the utility sector to serve new big data center load. So, for example, it's been reported that the um, electric utility in Virginia, Dominion, has basically told data center developers that they don't have capacity, they can't serve additional data center demand in Northern Virginia, which is one of the biggest areas for data center demand in the world. They can't serve new data centers until 2026. And we're starting to hear this anecdotally um, from more and more utilities and data center developers out there. Yeah, I mean, both of us, I think, have heard anecdotally stories that are like, 2026 is is a few years away. You know, we've started to hear stories that are substantially more concerning than that and much later than 2026. So I think that is, this is undeniably 
happening right now. You talk to anybody who's in the hyperscaler world, and they'll tell you that like the limiting factors on the growth of AI are basically a combination of chips and power. And in some cases, power is the limiting factor. Right. right. And so that this is, you know, we were talking about like the long-term prize of decarbonization and all the the load growth that you'd expect in electricity from that. This is totally orthogonal to that. Like this is not due to decarbonization. It's in addition. It just happens to be happening at the same time. Right. This is this is not beneficial electrification. This is just new electrification. This is just new energy demand. Another another data point or signpost, I guess, is um, you know, Amazon announced that they've got these three new data centers in Oregon that they're going to be, at least for the short term, powering with fuel cells from, from Bloom Energy, natural gas-powered fuel cells. Um, and part of that is because they just can't get connected to the grid and supplied by the grid in time. I, I think we're going to start to see more and more of that popping up. Right. So data centers is... And and computing is like one category, but I think our point here is that that's one category amongst a bunch. So let's talk about some of the others. Another one that I think um, is maybe underappreciated, but that you've pointed out, is the electricity load impact of the U.S. manufacturing renaissance, which is happening right now, largely thanks to the IRA, the infrastructure bill, Um People talk about, you know, you're starting to see all these factory announcements, some of them within the context of decarbonization, battery factories, you know, solar panel factories, stuff like that. But also outside of it, right? The um, CHIPS Act means a bunch of uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Um, like, what does that all add up to from an electricity context? Yeah, I, I think it it's going to be big. And it's another thing that the industry just had not been anticipating because this is a a major change in in policy for the U.S. and for Europe, um, and this this wave of real industrial policy that's focused on on reshoring or onshoring, you know, new industries in some cases, um, and that that actually seems to be working. Like if you look at um, at data from the U.S. Census Bureau, you look at construction spending and manufacturing that held constant um, for you know most of the last ten years, similar to electricity demand growth. But there's been a, there's been a surge in new investment in manufacturing facilities, basically since the infrastructure bill and the IRA and the Chips Act, this kind of trifecta of new industrial policy in the U.S. And you know it, it's hard to say over time how much this trend keeps up and spreads to sectors that aren't specifically targeted by the IRA and chips. But just one one small example, which turns out to be a pretty big example, actually, so is battery manufacturing. You know, the IRA has a lot of incentives for battery manufacturing for electric vehicles and for grid storage. And, you know, we've added up, roughly speaking, about a terawatt hour's worth of new battery manufacturing capacity that's really credible and under development in the U.S. today. And by that, I mean a terawatt hour's worth of battery capacity, of of annual battery production. So you can make one terawatt hour of battery space per year um, with the capacity under development. And roughly speaking, it turns out that for every terawatt hour of batteries you make, it takes about 50 terawatt hours or on that order of energy to manufacture those batteries. And a lot of that is going to be electricity demand. And if you add all that up, that comes out to about a little bit over 1% of current annual U.S. power consumption. That's that's a ton of electricity, right? Like anything that you can measure in 
in percentiles of current U.S. electricity consumption is really, really meaningful. And that's just one category of new manufacturing that these industrial policy bills are are bringing to the U.S. The other thing I want to point out about this, this is also true of data centers, this is also true of actually basically every category we're going to discuss in the sort of large industrial load um, group, which is where most of these things are, is that they're they're concentrated. It's not like spread all over the country. There's areas of the country where most of the data center development is going on, as you said, Northern Virginia being a good example. Same thing with all this battery manufacturing. I mean, it's somewhat spread out, but like there's certainly a high concentration in the Southeast, for example. We're seeing tons of new battery manufacturing facilities in like Georgia and South Carolina and, and West Virginia and places like that. So, uh, so, you know, if it's 1% of overall U.S. power consumption in total, in the locations where it is concentrated, it's going to be more than that. And again, as you said, this is just batteries and just currently a already announced battery manufacturing capacity. You know, like expand that to all the other types of manufacturing and the future announcements, and you can imagine where that heads. That's right. I recently heard the term battery belt. I hadn't heard before, but I guess that's what... Um, what the Southeast in particular is trying to brand this new surge of EV manufacturing and battery manufacturing. And that's that's totally right. I mean, within the region, it probably means a few percentage points worth of new electricity demand. And, you know, each one of these facilities individually is tens of megawatts, if not on the order of 100 megawatts of new load. That's the same. It, it, that The same is true for um, for semiconductor manufacturing. These are really, really big individual facilities from an electricity demand standpoint. So I don't think we need to belabor all the other categories here, but I think we should at least name them. These ones I think are, I don't know, generally a little bit earlier stage in the sense that like, it's a little bit less certain how much of them we're going to need, and it might take a little bit longer for them to show up at, at meaningful scale in the context of total electricity consumption. But over a five or 10 year time horizon, you could imagine them being pretty substantial. And that those include green hydrogen production, so electrolyzers that are that are using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. They include EV charging hubs, either just, you know, big banks of passenger EV chargers or, you know, the sort of emergence of heavy duty uh, EV charging, truck stops, that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, you even go a little further out if we believe we're going to start doing a lot of things like carbon removal than like direct air capture hubs, for example, which are also super energy consumptive. So I guess I think of those as being all kind of in a common bucket of part of the decarbonization story, potentially huge amount of electricity load in the long term, but maybe not as immediate as like the battery manufacturing stuff and certainly not as immediate as the data center stuff because we know that's happening right now. Completely agree. Um, and I think what's interesting about the, especially the first two of those new um, types of electricity demand that are emerging that you mentioned is, again, these these really represent, you know, big concentrated new sources of demand, new loads on the energy system. You know, when we're talking about green hydrogen projects, I think you and I uh, agree very much that the best way, the cheapest way to make green hydrogen is going to be to do so at very large scale. And I think that's what we're seeing play out in terms of this early project pipeline development in the hydrogen electrolysis world, which is that individual projects can be hundreds of megawatts, if not gigawatt scale. And it's been wild to see the uh, emergence of this 
project development pipeline take shape incredibly quickly, really over the past two to three years, but especially over the past two years for electrolysis projects across the country. Um, you know, again, uh, the, the DOE right now counts well over basically 100 gigawatts worth of sort of notional uh, green hydrogen project pipeline out there, um, which is enormous. You know, the U.S. is about 780 gigawatt or so non-coincident uh, peak demand today. And now I think I, I also believe, I know you believe as well, that ultimately a lot of that hydrogen production is going to be probably off-grid, you know, basically paired directly with large-scale renewables in the cheapest places where you can access renewable power. That said, at least for now, if you want to move quickly, it's easier to try to get a grid connection in some cases. Um, and we're seeing a lot of these projects kind of looking at both angles, both pursuing options for kind of fully off-grid renewable power, as well as um, grid-connected capacity to, to make clean hydrogen. Now, that 100 gigawatts of pipeline, you know, is very uncertain. Um, and I think that the uncertainty of it, in a way, is yet another challenge for the power sector, and especially for electric utilities who are trying to plan their systems for the demand that they're going to see in the next five plus years, five to 10 years, which is their typical planning cycle. And it's really hard to say, you know, is 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 that 10 gigawatts of project pipeline that's, you know, knocking on my door legitimate? Is it real? There, there seem to be some credible developers. There's not a lot of firm offtake contracts yet, but it's really, really difficult to plan for. Right. And then in addition to all of this, just to round out the like overall demand growth story for electricity, we've been talking, as you said, about concentrated large sources of new electricity load. There's also the growth in more distributed, smaller, individual scale, but ultimately hugely impactful load in the form of passenger electrical vehicle charging and heat pumps, like heating electrification. You know, you add those two things up. I think we've talked about both of these before. And they're not all in one place, but they can be highly concentrated as well. And the impacts can be as big as, if not bigger than any of the things we've talked about so far. Totally agree. And and in a way that their distributed nature can make it even more difficult to plan for than these big concentrated loads, right? If a data center developer knocks on your door as an electric utility, they tell you where they're going to build and they tell you how much power they want. It's very difficult to see how fast and exactly where electrification is coming for vehicles and where you're going to start to see more and more individuals uh, adopting level two chargers. They don't necessarily have to register that or you know get a permit for that. They just hire an electrician and if they've got spare capacity in their panel, they add it in. Um, and the same thing is going to be true of heat pumps. We're going to start to see more and more instances in which that distributed load begins to uh, have to be coordinated with uh, the utility because it's going to it's going to overwhelm um, the capacity of you know network transformers and you know individual households who want to add a new EV charger or more heat pumps are going to have to knock on the door of the utility. But at least for now, again, it's it's kind of hard to see. Okay, so add all this up, and I think the point that we are making is that there is obviously long-term, there's a good long-term reason to be bullish on electricity demand, but there's 
especially a good short-term reason to believe that demand is going to show up pretty quickly, sometimes in highly concentrated sources um, and from a variety of different sources. So you might look at that and think, fantastic, right? We all agree that electrification is a big part of the journey toward decarbonization. It might be the single biggest part, depending on how you think about it. And if you're in the you know, electricity industry, awesome. Like we've been, you know, we we went through a period of 10% annual load growth back in the 1950s. And then we settled to load growth that looks more like GDP growth in the like zero to 2% range uh, for the past couple of decades. And now we're going to resume a high load growth uh, world again. And so awesome. Like, you know, this is totally where you want to be if you're in the electricity business. So let's get to the other side of the gauntlet, which is like, how do we supply all of that electricity? And what are the challenges there? And I think there's two pieces to it. There's the generation side, where are we going to get the power from? And then there's the T&D side, where we, how are we going to deliver the power? So let's talk about the challenge on the generation side first. What do you see as being the reason why we can't just flip a switch and turn on all the generation that we would need in order, in order to serve all this load you know, virtually overnight? If only it were so easy. Um, I think what we're seeing is that this new big opportunity for the industry, which is a fantastic opportunity that we've just been talking about, is coming at a tough time for the planners of the power generation and transmission and distribution system. On the power generation side, there's really kind of a pinch that these system planners are feeling. And that pinch is coming from a few different factors. One is um, already planned coal retirements, coal power plant retirements. Another factor is, you know, new carbon policy and even non-mandatory but very public net zero power generation commitments that a lot of utilities and, and other power suppliers have made. So on the coal retirement side, there's there's still another 50 gigawatts of coal-fired power generation capacity in the U.S. that is basically on track, already well-planned, to be retired by the end of the decade. Now, some of those retirements might get pushed out, but I think for the most part, a lot of that retire- those retirements are, are fairly locked in. And then meanwhile, you know, over the past decade plus, we've been able to retire coal-fired generation capacity, which is what the, the power grid was basically built around, because we've been able to substitute it with new gas-fired generation capacity. For the most part, although there's there's a lot of nuance and complexity there, that's been a real net positive for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but moving forward, it's not going to be so easy just to say, okay, we'll retire coal and we'll add new gas in its place. Um, and that is partially because of these just general, uh, this atmosphere of net zero carbon commitments. But now it's coming in the form of real mandatory policy where the the EPA has now proposed new regulations, which would really constrain new investments in large gas-fired power generation additions, um, especially starting in 2032. So, you know, that's less than a decade away, where if you were to build new gas-fired capacity to serve this new electricity demand that, that you're seeing today, you need a plan to begin to decarbonize that capacity substantially beginning in 2032. And the way that the EPA has proposed you might do that is either by substituting the gas that it burns with hydrogen or some other hydrogen derivative clean fuel or through carbon capture, both of which you really have to start planning for today if you're starting to build new generation capacity today. 
Of course, you can also build renewables and storage. And you know, don't get me wrong, I think I'm, I'm very bullish on the long-term future for the combination of renewables and storage. Um, but first of all, there's really no solution today, right now, if you're seeing this load growth right now, that combines renewables and storage that is fully ready to scale up to supply multiple gigawatts of real firm 24-7 power. Now, I think there's some really promising solutions coming as quickly as you can imagine. But um, if you need new gigawatts of firm 24-7 power, like in the next three years, there's nothing that can really supply that from renewables and storage. There's also transmission and distribution constraints that you mentioned. And transmission constraints in particular are, are really difficult for renewables. Right. So we've talked about the problems with building new transmission on this podcast before, and, and I'm sure lots of folks are familiar with it, but just to restate it, like the, so we have, we have these compounding issues, which is, as you said, like the generation and particularly the, the pace of build of new generation, you didn't talk about interconnection a whole lot. Like we could, you also, we have a lot of renewables that are sitting in an interconnection queue and there's lots of reform to be done to try to get those things through the queue as fast as possible and shed all the sort of phony projects that just got into the queue in order to determine what it would be like to get interconnected but are never really going to move forward like all these kinds of things so you have all you 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 have a tough time getting the capacity that you need with the reliability that you need you have a tough time connecting it to the grid then you have a tough time building out any new transmission to deliver that power from wherever it's going to be generated to these new sources of load and then there's this additional and very immediate and real term challenge that we have not talked about before, but is is a real issue, which is that, you know, we had during, in the middle of COVID, everybody will recall that there was a supply chain shortage of lots and lots of different things. And, you know, we were discovering all the challenges of globalization, all that kind of stuff. Most of those supply chain shortages then went away and we're sort of like back in a normal world. One place it did not go away is in some electrical equipment and particularly in things like transformers. So this may not be a long-term problem, but it's definitely a short-term problem. So talk a little bit about the situation with just supplying... Why are transformers important in this context, I guess? And then, like, what's the situation today? So transformers step down or step up the voltage of electric power uh, moving from one place to another. And so if you are interconnecting a big generator, you have to use transformers to make sure that the voltage going into the grid aligns with the voltage of the lines of, of the uh, the lines that you're putting that power onto. And then once you get to the distributed level, you need transformers to step down the voltage going to homes and businesses. Basically, nothing gets interconnected to the electrical grid, either on the generation side or on the demand side, uh, without having a transformer somewhere in the mix. And like you said, we're seeing this big, uh, at least short-term supply chain pinch when it comes to transformer production capacity and a bunch of other related sort of not super sexy, but really critical grid uh, interconnection equipment. So just for example, um, the average price for a 25 to 50 kilowatt uh, transformer um, so pretty low level, something you would see at the edge of the electric distribution system, um, increased by up to nine times from 2020 to 2023. Used to pay, you know, 3,500 bucks for one of these. Now you're paying $20,000 uh, if you're a utility. 
And then also the, the time it takes to get the equipment has also just skyrocketed. So you used to be able to order a distribution-level transformer, and you'd, you'd get it within about two months. Now it's taking a year to two years or even longer um, to get the equipment that you need. And so, you know, I think any kind of supply chain issue like this seems resolvable over the medium to long term. But I think, you know, it's another symptom of the fact that the industry overall has grown fairly accustomed to a period of very low growth. So basically, we've had to produce this equipment at the rate that it's been having to be turned over as old equipment has failed or needs to be replaced. And so we need to step up manufacturing capacity for this type of equipment. And again, this presents a planning challenge in this case for the equipment manufacturers, which is how much do you step it up? How much new transformer manufacturing capacity do you build? And when do you build it? Um, And again, this gets back to the problem of the uncertainty of all this new electrification and and electricity demand. How fast is it coming and when is it coming and exactly what scale is it arriving at? Yeah. And on the, on the transformer supply chain pinch, I mean, there's, there's even more nuance to it as well, which we probably don't need to get into, but like it, it could actually get worse before it gets better because there are new standards that are being contemplated right now for, for transformers, which would be make them more energy efficient, but also make the supply chain even a little bit more challenging. Transformers require in the US this like particular kind of steel, electrical steel, and there's only one domestic supplier of that kind of steel. Like there's all these all these things that we are discovering as 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 you said, this sort of like um, the paradigm shifts. And I think for me, that's, this is the, this is the high level point to this whole thing about the gauntlet, which is that it's, it's kind of just like, we're, we're in this period where there's a wake up call for the power industry, which is that despite the fact that if you've been in the industry for a long time, as you and I both have in one form or another, there has been a lot of change, right? Like the, and again, the generation mix is, is probably the biggest one. We retired, we have retired a lot of coal. We have added a lot of new natural gas. We started to add a lot of new renewables. Like things have changed, but fundamentally the supply demand balance has been pretty steady for quite a while. And, uh, and everybody appreciated, I think that it was, that that was going to change over a longer period of time. What's becoming clear is that that's changing over a short period of time. And there's kind of a wake-up call moment right now where I suspect what you you should be doing if you're in this industry is saying like, okay, we need to revisit our two-year plan, not just our 20-year plan. Completely. I mean, the, the future is now, basically. I think all of these theoretical transformations, these theoretical big trends in the industry, which we sort of expected to gradually ramp up over a decade or two decades in terms of electrification and the need to transform the generation side of the fleet, are happening really quickly and are happening at the same time in a way that even five years ago, I think very few people would have anticipated. Okay, so obviously there's no single path through this gauntlet. And there's there are a lot of things that clearly need to happen, right? Like interconnection reform and figuring out how to build and transmission permitting and like all these things, they all need to happen. This is a yes and, but like, paint me a picture. What do you think, what do you think is our most likely path through the, the narrow window that we've got here? (laughs) Like, like you said, there's a bunch of macro level changes that I'd like to see a lot of which really do require some kind of policy 
intervention at this point. It doesn't have to be federal policy necessarily. But like the biggest one, I think, and you know, I'll I'll beat this drum over and over is transmission permitting reform, right? We need to be able to build new high voltage, long distance, long distance transmission assets to interconnect more renewables, to interconnect more regions and deliver clean power all over the country, uh, no matter what country you're in. Um, but kind of like you said, setting aside some of the big picture things, um, which are hard to change and, you know, could be the, the topic of multiple podcasts themselves. Um, there's a couple small opportunities or maybe not small opportunities, but, but, specific opportunities that I think come from this near-term pinch that we're facing, the near-term gauntlet. Um, The one is distributed generation and storage um, and the concept of a microgrid, which I consider basically any amount of distributed generation and storage that is connected to the distribution system, um, but can also provide uh, prime power, can, can fully island a customer, whether that's an individual household or a neighborhood or a large campus or a manufacturing facility for a really extended period of time, potentially indefinitely in some cases. Um, And I think, you know, microgrids have been this really fun, interesting concept as long as I've been paying attention to the industry. Um, They tend to be the kind of thing that like engineers and and dreamers get really excited about. Um, But I think that the practical time for microgrids might finally be here. Um, and I think we're starting to see more of that get deployed uh, in terms of um, critical loads that are ru- that are that are intended to run with some regularity on distributed generation um, and storage as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what's different um, about the new wave of microgrid interest and development is the motivating factor is a little bit different, right? Like in the in the early days of microgrids, we were talking about them 10, 15 years ago, it was all about reliability. And so the point of a microgrid was to be able to island in the event of an outage. And there, and there are some customers for whom, and some locations for whom that actually is incredibly important and they will pay for it. And, you know, a bunch of interesting businesses have been developed around that. But what we're saying here is that there's there's a new, maybe additional motivation for some version of a microgrid, which is the problem that we've been describing, which is if if you are a new source of concentrated load, um, or you're going to increase your load substantially, and you either cannot get additional capacity, or it's not going to come soon enough for you, um, and in particular with you know you mentioned the Amazon Bloom thing in in Oregon, right? These data centers, um, generally speaking, are somewhat price insensitive but time sensitive, and when you have that dynamic, uh, it it creates a different kind of an opportunity to say like, well, okay, we got to deliver power sooner, even if it is a little more expensive than the grid, uh, because otherwise we're just going to have to sit around and wait. So I think there's this like additional layer of uh, reason uh, for being for for microgrids that when you layer that on top of the resiliency and reliability thing actually starts to become totally a, a different paradigm. That's a great example. I think that's the, you know, that exemplifies one extreme end of the spectrum, which is, anticipating getting the majority or all of your power supply, at least for some amount of time for the next few years, for example, from a microgrid and distributed generation. You know, at at sort of the other end of the spectrum, I think um, an example is these EV charging hubs, these sites where you're going to start to see more large-scale charging for heavier-duty vehicles, for example, kind of all coming together 
at a depot where they're charging overnight. Or, you know, I think this is a little further down the road, but highway rest stops where you're going to see potentially megawatt scale charging for uh, larger, longer haul types of electric vehicles. And in those cases, resiliency is a part of the value. In most cases, you're not going to see sites that are entirely supplied by a microgrid. But the, the real value to the site is being able to reduce the peak amount of electricity that you draw from the utility so that you can reduce the size of the transformer that you need um, to hook up to the grid um, and also reduce the, the amount that the electric utility has to charge you for that peak demand. And I, I really believe that's a category we're going to see a lot more of um, and already are starting to see pop up as this kind of electric vehicle chargers paired in some way with, with storage to buffer their demand against the grid. And generation, for what it's worth, I'm for some reason I've gotten targeted on, I think on LinkedIn by Plug Power, which is a fuel cell provider who is uh, who's posting ads that are targeting me incorrectly for um, using fuel cells to power uh, charging depots uh, and presumably using hydrogen fuel cells to do so, which is you know thermodynamically. <laughs> not the not probably the smartest thing in the world, but like may just be the reality if you're trying to build a depot and you can't get your electricity capacity in time. Are you sure they're not micro targeting you because they know you have a podcast and and would talk <laughs> about them on the podcast like you just did? If so, then <laughs> kudos to you, plug power. Well done. Um, okay, so microgrids one one potential, as you said, not small but specific sort of outcome of this. Others that you think are worth noting. I think the other the other big category that really emerges from this near-term pinch in, in the gauntlet, this really narrow passage that the utilities have to get through, um, is, is new gas generation assets, basically. I mean, if you if you do need to serve gigawatt scale new loads within like let's say the next three, maybe even up to five years, it's really hard to find to think of another option that will really work, especially if that's, you know, more than very low capacity factor kind of peaking type of load, which which storage is a pretty good uh, solution to today. Um, but if you're going to build new natural gas power generation assets today, you, you need a way to future-proof them, or, I, you know, I think of it as kind of carbon future-proofing them. Um, and that can come in a couple forms. One is, you know, fuel optionality, the ability to build something today, like a new gas plant that can be relatively easily and cheaply retrofitted to burn hydrogen or ammonia um, over time. And, and fortunately, that's something that I think the natural gas turbine OEMs have been very proactive about um, in developing products that are starting to meet that kind of roadmap where you can build something that is you know, low-level hydrogen hydrogen capable today, you know, capable of blending in, say, 30% hydrogen by volume. But if you build the plant today with the future of burning more hydrogen in mind, then it will be relatively low cost to retrofit for much higher levels of hydrogen generation moving forward. Um, I think the same thing to a, in a different way is true for um, planning for carbon capture. I've not yet seen as much um, sort of design for future carbon capture on the the natural gas power plant side uh, that that hasn't surfaced into my um, visibility at least yet. 
Um, but if you are a power generation asset developer and you want to build new gas and you think that the pathway to carbon future-proof it is CCS, then you better start developing and planning for how you're going to do that CCS today. Because one thing we have seen is that uh, the S part in particular, sequestration sites, can take quite a long time to develop. Um, so I, I think that we are going to need to see more investment in new natural gas power generation capacity in the near term. Um, but I think it would behoove anyone who's building that capacity to really start planning for and like creating a credible, plausible path for decarbonizing that stuff over time. I'll add one more category, which is I think the the suite of things that can help alleviate transmission constraints um, without needing to build new transmission lines is another category that like should certainly should benefit. And that could be, you know, uh, reconductoring, that can be dynamic line ratings, that can be long-duration energy storage, that can be placed strategically on places on the grid. Like, there's a bunch of things you could do to try to get more power over the existing lines. This has been a thing, you know, utilities have wanted to do for a long time. It's just more urgent than it has been before. So I'm, I remain hopeful that we're, we're at least going to start to do more of that stuff. I remain hopeful too. And, and the nice thing about you know, necessity, right? Is it, it uh, is going to make people move. I think on some of these ideas and technologies that um, otherwise there just wasn't the urgency to try or to, you know, especially when there was at least the perception of some amount of risk involved on these really long lived, you know, steadfast assets like transmission lines. Um, but we just are running out of options. And if you're going to make it through this gauntlet, you need to try a bunch of different things. All right. I think we've beaten the gauntlet metaphor as, as <laughs> hard as we can. So uh, so we'll leave it at that. But um, I, I continue to think, I know you and I agree on this. I continue to think this is like, this is the issue. And certainly in, in electricity, obviously, but like this might be the issue in decarbonization at the moment. Uh, and, and I think it deserves all the attention we can give it. It, it is. And part of that is because if this if this doesn't work, right? If if the power sector isn't able to make it through this period, and it results in people unable to build new manufacturing facilities, new data centers in a timely fashion, and if it results in kind of costs starting to spiral out of control, electricity costs spiraling out of control for customers, like that puts at risk basically the whole project of decarbonization because we we are relying on the electricity sector to deliver here over the long term and as we've talked about like that means this enormous opportunity for the electricity sector um, which is the prize but if if we can't deliver in the short term it could kind of throw the whole thing out of whack and cause consumers and voters to decide that this this whole thing is not really worthwhile. All right, Andy, more to come. But as always, thanks for joining. Thanks, Shale. Good conversation. Andy Lubershane is my partner at EIP and our head of research. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. 
I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. <laughs>